Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Needs Some Introduction. I'm your host, Victor. And on this podcast, we do deep dives into some popular and not so popular shows that we happen to be watching. Today, we will be wrapping up the season finale of House of the Dragon, season one, an episode called The Black Queen, directed by Greg Yetanes, who's a producer on the show and has directed quite a few of these episodes this season, or I should say, a few. Later this week, we will also be wrapping up the final episode of The Patient on Hulu. I believe this will not be coming back for another season, but we'll know soon enough. It's just a couple of days away. This episode is coming out sooner. If you have been following this series on House of the Dragon, I'll be by myself breaking down this final episode just for efficiency's sake, trying to get this episode out as quickly as possible for all of you. And this will be my instant reaction to the show. But I will be having a conversation with my sister, Celia, who I've been recapping the show with up until this point. So do check in later this week for that subsequent conversation. Also in this episode, I had actually intended to have this out over the weekend, but we just got busy with parties and things. You know, life gets in the way of podcast production. (laughs) So I will have the breakdown of the next show that we're planning to be covering, a new science fiction series called The Peripheral. And I will be once again solo breaking down those first two episodes, but we'll bring my sister in for a conversation just to get her feel for the show. I don't think she was a very big fan of it, and I have some question marks around it as well, but we will be covering this throughout the next couple of months while we actually do continue to cover other Amazon Prime shows as well. There's quite a few in the wake of the success of Amazon Prime launching the Lord of the Rings series. They have a string of science fiction and genre um, series rolling out, and I am curious to see if they're able to draft the success of that show and prop up some of these other series as well. So make sure you subscribe so you know when all of those episodes become available and you can see some additional coverage that we have coming up, including next week, Sona and I, following up on our coverage of The Patient, we'll be now covering the second season of White Lotus. If you'd like to send us any feedback, please email us, needsomeintroduction at gmail.com. Give us a star rating or a review on your podcatcher of choice. And of course, if you'd like to support the show, recommend this to your friends and family, anyone else who might be watching these shows with you, and check our backlog for other series that you may be catching up on, whether that be Succession or Severance or even, hey, Mayor of Easttown, another excellent show you may still be trying to catch up on from last year, all covered here in this feed. And since it is spooky season, maybe you'd like to watch Yellow Jackets on Showtime and track down our coverage of that series as well. That is coming back after their hugely successful season one. Season two is in production right now, and hopefully we'll be seeing it early 2023. So a perfect time to be catching up with that show. They crowned him before the masses. So that the masses would see him as their rightful king. That whore of a queen murdered my brother and stole his throne, and you could have done more for it. A war is like to be fought over this treachery, to be sure. Mm. But that war is not mine to begin. I only rushed this warning to you out of loyalty to my husband and to my house. The Greens are coming for you, Rhaenyra. And for your children. You should leave Dragonstone at once. So with that out of the way, here we are. The season finale of House of the Dragon, The Black Queen. We open this episode with Luke. He is interestingly at the map. This is the war map at Dragonstone which helpfully has labels on each one of the different territories. And he talks to Rhaenyra about how he does not want to be 
the Lord of the Tides. He's still fretting that Corliss is going to die. His fever has not yet broken. And Corliss had, of course, put him as successor to that title. Rhaenyra mentions to him that he doesn't always choose his destiny. We don't always get to choose our destiny. But Luke does mention that Viserys had mentioned to them that she got to choose to be the next ruler. Rhaenys arrives on Dragonback with lots of news, immediately following up her exit from King's Landing last week. Your father's dead, and your title has been usurped. Damon immediately reads this news in as stark and negative a way as possible. Alicent has killed his brother. He was fine the last time he saw him. <laughs> Very questionable there. And following up on our question at the end of last week, I'm not sure I really buy this completely, but Rhaenys basically says, this will almost certainly lead to war. It's not her war to begin. All of this news sends Rhaenyra into a very early labor. While she's having very loud labor pains echoing through the castle, Damon and the lords are planning their war strategy. They will prop up all of their forces along the ridge lines, make them look like a bigger force than they are visually. And Damon, of course, is thinking about the dragons, always thinking about the dragons. Rhaenyra, as she continues this very painful labor, calls the boys to her side. And she explicitly says to Jace, it's your job to make sure that there is no war started without my say-so. We find out here that Corliss's fever has finally broken, and Jace goes into the war planning room. Damon is ready to rally the troops and immediately make a strike on King's Landing. Jace explicitly says that no action is to be taken without his mother's orders. And Damon decides to take Jace out and says, I want to show you what loyalty really looks like. Once again, I do worry about Damon as a leader when you see certain actions like we see here. We have this completely over the top, this is from a stylistic standpoint or from a direction standpoint, cross-cutting of Rhaenyra giving birth to her premature and stillborn child, sadly. And this is intercut with Damon basically confronting some knights and saying, are you still loyal to the queen for real? If you re-pledge your loyalty now, you will be safe. If you do not pledge your fealty today, you will die quickly. But if you betray us in the future, you will die slowly. So Damon in general believes in being a tyrannical leader. And I do wonder if we are planting the seeds now, once again, not familiar with the actual book-based history of these characters. Is this type of tyrannical leadership going to lead to a short-term victory, but then a long-term collapse of this family? And maybe that is what is outlined in season two. Remains to be seen, of course. This is just me speculating. As I mentioned, we have Renera with the stillborn child. I have appreciated the show, by the way, this entire season. There is an ongoing, not even subtext at this point, it is a theme across this entire season of show about the costs and risks of childbearing and motherhood. And here we have one more. I mean, we have had so many bloody, horrible births. I've appreciated this entire season, but I'm at this point, this late in the game, I'm like, okay, <laughs> I get it. Can we have a little less of this next season, please? We see a funeral for the baby, where everyone has gathered. Relatively sparsely populated island right now. And Eric, I think this is Eric with an E, not Eric, his twin brother. I forget which one's the good one, but this is the one who helped Rainus escape. And he shows up to say, I pledge my loyalty, my fealty, my life, my chastity to my queen. And he even brought a crown with him, one of the crowns from King's Landing. Although not the conqueror's crown, I guess. Everyone kneels to Rhaenerys, but not Rhaenys. I guess because she, I'm not sure exactly why. I don't think she's trying to make a point here. Maybe it's just her status. Or maybe it's the fact that Corliss is the one who makes the final decision as to whether they align with her or not, now that he's better. But she does seem 
to be pleased to see Rhaenyra crowned as queen. Just that she gets to see this happen in her lifetime, perhaps. Or just imagining what it would be like if she had worn that crown at one point. The war map is lit up. The same war map we saw at the beginning of the episode. And they start placing their markers. The board, like this biggest risk board of all times. Who will be loyal to the queen? We hear, I think, the mention of the Stark family for the very first time here. They have a reputation for being loyal. And if they are loyal, and because they are well-liked and honorable, if they pledge fealty to the queen, the North will line up behind them. But all of this is tenuous, and Damon keeps bringing up the fact that wars are won and lost based on the number of dragons you have, and they have 13 to 4, as far as his count goes. Rhaenyra is not completely convinced and seems put off by all of this really bloodthirsty talk, especially from Damon. But before this conversation can even have or can even escalate, Otto arrives with an offer. Rhaenyra shows up at the meeting and is a very, very impressive entry that she makes. And of course, a show of power. Remember, we have dragons. Princess Rhaenyra. I'm Queen Rhaenyra now. And you all are traitors to the realm. King Aegon Targaryen, second of his name. In his wisdom and desire for peace, he's offering terms. Acknowledge Aegon as king and swear obeisance before the Iron Throne. In exchange, his grace will confirm your possession of Dragonstone. It will pass to your true-born son, Jaceris, upon your death. Jaceris will be confirmed as the legitimate heir to Driftmark and all the lands and holdings of House Valarian. Your sons by Prince Daemon will also be given places of high honor at court. Aegon the Younger as the King's squire, Viserys as his cupbearer. Finally, the king in his good grace will pardon any knight or lord who conspired against his ascent. I would rather feed my sons to the dragons than have them carry shields and cups for your drunken usurper cunt of a king. Aegon Targaryen sits the Iron Throne. He wears the Conqueror's crown, wields the Conqueror's sword, has the Conqueror's name. He was anointed by a Septon of the Faith before the eyes of thousands. Every symbol of legitimacy belongs to him. And then there is Stark, Tully, Baratheon, houses that have also received and are at present considering generous terms from their king. Otto smartly throws out the fact that the Starks, the Tullys, and the Baratheons, all families that Rhaenyra had been counting on to line up behind her, were currently being made offers to. He makes a pretty good offer to let Rhaenyra live on Driftmark. Her family can inherit the lands and the powers as outlined before. The knights that are there will be given amnesty for being disloyal to the king. Damon says, I don't want any of your deals. Let me just take your head off right now. <laughs> Rhaenyra, however, says, let's wait. Give it a day. Damon's not happy with this. And they go back to their planning session again. And now Rhaenyra and Damon are openly butting heads. It's no easy thing for a man to be a dragon slayer. But dragons can kill dragons and have. The simple truth is this. We have more dragons than Aegon. Viserys spoke often of the Valyrian histories. I know them well. When dragons flew to war, everything burned. I do not wish to rule over a kingdom of ash and bone, 
Are you considering the High Tower's terms, Your Grace? As Queen, what is my true duty to the realm, Lord Bartimus? Ensuring peace and unity, or that I sit the Iron Throne no matter the cost? What's your father talking? My father's dead. And he chose me as his successor. To defend the realm, not cast it headlong into war. Well, the enemy have declared war. What are you going to do about it? And she mentions to Damon that there are bigger things, bigger stakes here. Remember the story of the Song of Ice and Fire. But Damon doesn't know this story. And he lashes out at her, the fact that his brother never shared this with him. And once again, Damon is just thinking about those dragons. That's how we win this thing, regardless of what Renera tells him. He gets so furious at this point that he actually starts choking her out. So it really shows you just still unpredictable he can possibly be. Then we see a very interesting scene between Corliss and Rhaenys. Corliss seems really defeated here after his long fight against this fever. Heedless ambition has always been a Valarian weakness. You are right, Rhaenys. I reached too far. And for nothing. Our pursuit of the Iron Throne is at an end. Jace, Luke, and Joff are claimants to the throne. Those boys will not be safe so long as Aegon is king. Rhaenyra was complicit in our son's death. That girl destroys everything she touches. That girl is holding the realm together at present. Every man standing around the painted table urges her to plunge the realm into war. Rhaenyra is the only one who's demonstrated restraint. And despite all of the issues they've had with her in the past, they do decide to pledge their loyalty to her. Corliss eventually meets with Rhaenyra and tells her, you have the full support of our fleet and our house. And of course, Rhaenys had already pointed out the fact that our daughters will be married to these potential kings. And as long as they live that threat will always be out there and their lives will always be at risk. And that's their family, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, everybody, which of course is a key part of Corliss's motivation. With Corliss on board, this makes everyone feel much, much more confident about the situation. Renera has already said that she will not accept what is happening, but at the same time, she will not strike first. She needs to know who will be loyal to her when that moment comes. Corliss mentions, hey, I got sick out there. I almost died. But what I was doing was securing the stepstones. Not like the first time of battle one and then retreating, but they now control the stepstones and through a narrow passage there as well, they can have a full blockade, full blockage of any transport in or out of King's Landing. Raina says that she will patrol the narrow passage herself with her dragon. So that's their plan. You starve them and then you surround them, but they need enough manpower to surround them. And of course, they have to make sure that, for example, the Baratheons who are nearby won't actually attack their flank as they're surrounding King's Landing. So they need to get a loyalty check from these remaining families. They're going to send the Raven to check in on families in the north and the south. But Luke mentions, nope, dragons are faster. We should do this ourselves. Jace is heading north to meet up with all the families in the north. Luke is heading to the south to meet with the Baratheons 
it's nearby. And here we have a huge miscalculation by Renera, where she tells Luke, who's worried about this trip, look, it's a short trip. The Baratheons are in your bloodline. And Lord Baratheon is very proud. He'll just be happy to host the prince. You'll be greeted very kindly there. Damon has another plan. More dragons. He had mentioned earlier that not only are there some riderless dragons, there are actual wild dragons on the island still. And he decides to go and serenade in Valerian, one of these massive, monstrous, really feral-looking dragon. And I do wonder, what is the size of this dragon? And can it really be tamed? And is this, you know, once again, not having read the books, is this dragon going to be a dragon killer? Is this going to lead to the extermination of the dragons? So maybe Damon's fervor for more and more and more dragons, more and more wild dragons, might lead to the end of the dragon lineage. Because this dragon just gives me very, very bad vibes. And Damon had even mentioned at that fireside conversation with Renera that part of the reason reinforcing that idea that that dragon's equal power, Damon mentions that for a man to kill a dragon is incredibly, incredibly difficult. But dragons do kill dragons all the time. And we outnumber the dragons that they have. And once again, seeing this feral dragon, I do wonder that once dragons start killing dragons and get a little taste for that, it is a zero-sum game where eventually you have one dragon, and if it can't mate, then that's the end of the dragons. Luke arrives at the Baratheon castle, and as he's walking inside, he sees a Godzilla-sized dragon. He's also there. Somehow he missed it on arrival. And he really should have, at that very moment, backed out of this whole thing, because we only know one person who's riding that gigantic dragon. This is pretty funny. He arrives inside. We right away see that Aemond is still there. Not surprising at this point. And I'm pretty sure the Baratheon king cannot read. He needs his maester to come and read the offer presented by Renera via Luke. This doesn't go well. He's not warmly received. Remind me of my father's oath. King Aegon at least came with an offer. My swords and banners for a marriage pact. If I do as your mother bids, which one of my daughters will you wed? Boy. My lord, I'm not free to marry. I'm already betrothed. So you come with empty hands. Go home, pup. And tell your mother that the Lord of Storm's End is not some dog that she can whistle up at need to set against her foes. I shall take your answer to the Queen, my lord. And it looks like he will not get his loyalty. Although I'm sure his decision is based on more than this. His decision is probably based on what are the other kings and his family and neighborhood going to decide to do. But it's not smooth. It's not as smooth as they were hoping for. And this is when Aemon really starts to escalate things as he likes to. First of all, he calls Luke Lord Strong. <laughs> Once again, a little salt in the wound. He shows off, I honestly, some pretty awesome skull jewelry here. He's embedded some blue stone, I believe, in his eye socket, the empty eye socket, and asks Luke to remove one of his eyes as payback so he could present it to his mother, Queen Alicent. I'm pretty sure at least one of those three Baratheon girls is really goth, and she was like, whoa, look at that awesome eye gear. I think she's digging on the whole death lover vibe that Aemond is giving off right here. Luke does sound confident, at least, being like, no, he refuses to remove an eye. Hey, <laughs> doesn't really take a lot of courage to tell somebody you don't plan to remove your own eye. 
And Lord Baratheon says, you will not have violence in here. No blood will be shed. I am not going to let this happen under my roof and kicks them out. He's a messenger. He's not a warrior. This can't happen here. So he's protected momentarily. But as soon as he walks out the door, the race is on. Race to the dragons and escape. Then we have a very long, really one of the most incredible visual sequences we've had in this whole entire series. And compared to Game of Thrones, where they little by little were figuring out the dragon thing, looked very, very sketchy early on in the series and got better as they went along. This whole sequence, they must have planned it out way ahead of time, had plenty of time to finish it properly because it's just beautifully rendered. It helps that it's in pouring rain. When you have limited budget for your special effects, put a lot of rain around it. We can go back to the original Tyrannosaurus Rex attack in the first Jurassic Park film. All you need is some rain to mask any visual weaknesses. And that's why that stuff looks so good. And partially, that's why this looks so good now. Just some of the really cool sequences we see here. Luke is flying with his dragon. There's a lightning strike within a cloud. And we see in silhouette this massive, massive, the size of Vagar emerges from the clouds and nips at Arax. But Luke, being smart, decides to use his small size to his advantage and goes through this narrow passage and Vagar cannot fit. So now it seems that Arax has Arax and Luke have possibly made their escape. But then in subtitles, it seems that Luke has lost control of Arax, who has decided to go and sneak attack on Vagar. And then Vagar also, off on her own, ignores Aemon's calls to control herself. And then another beautiful sequence, as we see finally Arax and Luke have escaped the storm. They're high up in this cloud. They can see the sun. It looks like a glide path back to the island, back to Dragonstone when Vagar emerges from one of these storm clouds and just chomps them in half. And we see just the wings fluttering down back into the storm clouds and Aemon's face, because he knows he has just accidentally drawn first blood and this war is on. And that leads us to the final moments in slow motion. Damon approaches Rhaenyra around the war room table, whispers in her ear. You see her from behind processing this information and she turns around and now she is, as the title states, the Black Queen. The Black Queen because she's Targaryen. The Black Queen because she's in mourning yet again. And the Black Queen because now her heart is black too. And the Dance of the Dragons is about to begin. I'm not going to spend too much time right now talking about the strengths and weaknesses of this season because I think I'm going to spend most of my conversation with Celia talking exactly about that. I will agree to some of the negative comments on House of the Dragon that, especially when the time jumps became more prevalent, that there's an element of soap opera to this, where we're just seeing people in these extreme situations having to react to them. And that can feel a little soapy. I agree. But I was vested enough in the characters and in the future development of these characters that I was compelled the entire time. And I just felt that the spectacle of it was really impressive to me. So that kept me going as well. If I did believe that next season would simply be a 10-year time jump every single episode, I probably would tune out of the show pretty readily. But I'm pretty sure that's not going to be the case because we only want to cover another 125 years or so. You can't do it 10 episodes at a time because you're going to run out of story uh, basically within next season. And I am pretty sure that HBO wants this thing to be a four or five-year cycle minimally. And it could be like the queen. I mean, it could be like the crown in some ways where you can be talking about, although fictional, obviously, that it's going to be covering a completely different period of time, a completely different mini dynasty within the Targaryen dynasty. So we can see a lot of characters swapping out maybe over the course of a season or even within a season. But I do not expect to see big 10-year, 
20 year time jumps, even 20 years within a, a, a season. Maybe I, I'll take that back. Maybe 20 years within a season makes sense, actually. And in five years or so, you're getting close to the continuity within the original Game of Thrones show. So I'm still very interested. And tune in later this week when I discuss this finale with my sister and we get her feel for how excited she is. I'm pretty sure she's pretty excited. She's been a big, big fan of this show and has not had some of those qualms that I've had about how disconnected I feel from some of the characters just when they make those big time jumps. But I feel if they stick with these characters, this cast, I should say, in the next season, I'll be pretty happy, even more so than I was with this season. And hey, I was pretty happy with this season. And to contrast it one last time, to contrast it briefly to the first season of Game of Thrones, I do not think this season is as good as the best seasons of Game of Thrones. But that show in and of itself, not only with the last season, but just even before then, had some pretty rough patches, even when they were on book. And for my money, that first season of Game of Thrones was very hard for me to follow. There were too many families. There were too many hierarchies that I needed to understand what was the motivation of all these different folks within each one of those family dynasties. It was just too much for me to absorb in the first season. And I think that this is very streamlined. And we started with a very, very small group, a handful of people we were following. And that pool of people has grown. And I'm sure will continue to grow in the subsequent seasons. So once again, pretty happy with all of this. And I'll have my final thoughts and Celia's final thoughts later in the week. Next, let us get into that conversation I had with Celia discussing the new science fiction show on Amazon Prime, The Peripheral. All right, so Celia, at the top of this episode, I'm going to insert my instant reaction to the finale of House of the Dragon. And uh, we will touch base later this week when we can kind of get your final opinions of the season as well. But what I wanted to bring you on for now was to to introduce a new series we'll be covering. And I already said this to you off mic, but I'll do it officially. Here we have Amazon Prime coming off of this huge success of their Lord of the Rings show, a show that I did not like, by the way. And I will give some kind of actual review, some space in here for that review somewhere in the future maybe bring somebody on who did like that show more than I did. But regardless of whether I appreciated it or not, it was a huge success. I think they averaged 25 to 30 million viewers in the US per week. And worldwide, which of course, that's while they're thinking about Amazon's thinking about their worldwide audience, about 100 million people per episode, pretty huge number of people watching that show. And they're trying to capitalize on that with a string of new shows that are coming here on Amazon Prime. Some of them are pretty high profile. And this is the very first one, just one week out from that finale. It's called The Peripheral. The showrunner here is Scott Smith, who wrote and wrote a screenplay for a movie called A Simple Plan. Did you ever see that, Celia? Yeah, that was very good. He won an Academy Award. Nom- I'm sorry, he didn't win. He got an Academy Award nomination for that screenplay and a very good book as well. The book is actually better than the movie, but the movie's very solid. Film. It's so good. Yeah. He also made an underappreciated horror film called The Ruins. Did you ever see that? I did. Yeah, that's a good one. I, I, people hate that because of the you know reveal of who the uh, killer is in that thing, but I, which I won't spoil here. But I actually really like that film. It's a very strange horror film, but I definitely did enjoy it. 
and directed these first two episodes, although we will have new directors cycling in. These first two episodes are directed by the um, Canadian director, Vincenzo Natalie, Natalie, probably, who most famously directed a movie called Cube. Did you ever see that, Celia? I have, yep. And I think a movie that people absolutely hate, but I think is a very good movie, a movie called Splice. Have you ever seen this one? Very good movie. Yes. Very twisted and a very, very good. So I recommend all of those, you know, a simple plan for Scott Smith and cube, just the first one. There's many of them, but just the first one directed by him and splice as well. And this is based just going down the list of all the, the pedigree here for this show based on a William Gibson novel, William Gibson, very famous for his novel neuromancer, where the whole idea of cyberspace and the, basically the word cyberspace was coined in that novel. He kind of foresaw a lot of the current world we live in, honestly. And he's very much into cyberpunk, which is another kind of terminology that's kind of associated with him. And Celia, you and I have been talking about maybe doing a series on film noir. All of his novels are basically noirs that are set in cyberspace or set in a near future and, you know, instead of having the alienation of like a gumshoe, like a cop who's kind of on the outs or something, you have people who, and we'll get into it in this particular show, but you have these characters that for many reasons, they're kind of on the fringe of society and they're like criminals, right? Instead of being like criminals, like on a lot of film noirs, they are criminals within this cyber world. And given what I just described there, it's not surprising that the other forces behind this show are Lisa Joy and Jonathan Nolan who are married couple who are also the producers of Westworld. Because when you dis- when I just described this kind of cyber future film noir, you think of Westworld, right? Which is kind of a cross between a Western and a film noir set in the future or near future. And also a really terrible, <laughs> have you seen this movie, Celia? From last year, Lisa Joy's first film ever directing, which is very, very similar to the show we're watching now, cyber film noir called Reminiscence. Did you see this? I think I have. Remind me what happens. It's with, um, it's in the near future. It's like the world is flooded. Hugh Jackman and Rebecca Ferguson. And it's basically some technology in the future where you can capture people's dreams or memories. And he's basically a broker that does this. It is very much in line with Westworld. And it's almost feels like all these properties are in the same shared universe. Reminiscence, by the way, and it's going to be a theme we're going to say with Westworld. And I think with this show also is a world that is so well created. Like they have thought about how does this technology work? What led to the societal collapse to get to this moment? They think about all the details, but then like the story itself, not so riveting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Before we (laughs) get too far into our opinions of all of this, uh, let's break down the episode a little bit. And I think we could be pretty high level. We do interestingly begin in London in 2099. About 80 years in the future, I do find it unlikely that we would have these giant skyscrapers that are shaped like Roman statues in an 80-year period. I don't think we're going to evolve that much. So some of this feels a little bit uh, like an unbelievable future. But the design work is actually pretty beautiful in general. We see that this character, Alita, inside of a young girl's body, goes and talks to this character called Wolf will discover over time that what she actually is, is it's her, it's somebody's conscience inside of a peripheral. Peripheral is basically like a robotic body that someone can navigate from, not only from a different location, but it turns out potentially from a different timeline. That's one of our timelines that we're covering here, 2099. And then we also go to 2032. So a near future where we meet a brother and sister, Flynn, 
and Burton. Flynn is played by Chloe Grace Moretz, who in general I do like. And Burton is played by Jack Rayner, who's a British actor, believe it or not, with a terrible accent. Everybody has terrible accents in this show, by the way. <laughs> and the last time I saw Jack Rayner, he was wearing the worst bear suit of all times. Do you know what I'm talking about, Celia? Yes. <laughs> I won't spoil it here. <laughs> but he does have to wear the worst bear suit ever. <laughs> Before we get going, like we have this basic setup here of these worlds that have been created. And of course, like they're down in, what is this, Louisiana or something? What's yeah, your general like opinion? In, these, these actors, their accents, the, the anyway, the setup. It's very uh, visually striking in the opposite way that Game of Thrones is because it's like you're watching a cartoon. Yeah. Even the film yes. looks like that. Yeah, I think you're touching on something there that I hadn't thought about that I think is a good point. It feels very low stakes, right? Even though these people's like lives are on the line because it feels like there's too much artifice to all of this, right? Exactly, yes. A detail I forgot that I wanted to bring back. I just remembered. The first thing we see is the 2099 timeframe, which is important, by the way, 2099, because it just allows us to know as viewers that this isn't like someone playing a prank on her, that this is all happening in cyberspace or something. You know, it literally says 2099 on the, on the, on the screen, right? So we know that this London, 2099. So that is a version of 2099 that we're seeing. They're not playing peekaboo with this. It's not going to be like some kind of switcheroo later on. The second thing I thought was interesting is that the very next thing we see, and I forgot to bring it up here, we see a diorama of the farmhouse, the trailer where Burton lives uh, adjacent to the house. And we see like someone placing the people onto the board. Now, this is very interesting to me because it means that somebody probably from the future is actually manipulating their actions, right? Because someone has had the, you know, painstakingly created this diorama to basically track their movement, right? So someone is a puppet master in this whole thing. And then after that, we see that, you know, this diorama, this 3D printed, interestingly, because that's where she works, 3D printed model that we see is actually correlates to an actual place with actual people living in it. This is very well thought out. It is. That, I, and it might be from and, the book, right? But it's interesting also the way they filmed it, which is what we were talking about and yes. what you just said too. When they're supposed to be in cyberspace or in the future, yeah. in a video game in someone else's consciousness, it looks more like it's a video game, an mm -hmm. actual video game. So that's very interesting because it is a video game, right. sort of. Right, right. And then when they're in the South, somewhere where we can't figure out where it looks a little more tactile. Yeah, I agree. We find out that their mom is sick. I don't know if they know she has cancer or if they think it's something else because she seems a little surprised to know that she has this diagnosis that she's near death at the end of, I guess, episode two, but they know that she's very, very sick. This medication she needs to be on, she has to buy it from drug dealers. <laughs> and it costs $1,000 per day for this pill. Pretty, pretty expensive. And the mom is blind. Yes. She's been blind by either by this cancer or from other condition as well. So she finds out that her mom is low on her pills and she accuses her br brother of stealing the pills because he has pain problems too. Apparently he was formerly in the military. Uh, he has haptics, right? He basically has, um, he's able to control it either in games or even drones. 
through these haptics that are under his skin. And then we see there's a whole bunch of these folks who have this. And at first I thought it was just like, is this just, just for an enhanced gaming experience? No, it turns out this was part of their, basically the drone program in the military. Uh, and he has his own pain problems, right? Uh, but she's accusing him of taking some of these pills, which means that she desperately needs to get her hands on another one of these pills as quickly as possible. She's so nice about it though. Even when she accuses him, like she does it kind of like, understandingly she's annoyed at him but she is like okay so how do we fix this problem exactly she's very calm about it and the way they fix this problem is that he is apparently losing some mission and he offers to you know hey if you can clear this level i'm going to get paid he apparently does this is the work he does and by the way this is a legitimate job nowadays he's getting paid by rich people to log in as those characters to build up their characters and like complete these higher and higher missions. This is actually an actual job. There was, I had a friend of mine who worked uh, at my last job and what he did was he literally had a computer running all the time that was like mining gold in one of these um, multiplayer cyber worlds, right? Where you have these characters that you build up. So he had basically had robotic characters that were like mining there and then he would sell those, the gold he would buy armor and shields and swords and everything, and then sell them to players. So this is something that is kind of happening in the real world. And once again, to the credit of Gibson, of course, who's very technically savvy, and to these showrunners, they're making a world which is believable. But she is the better player than he is. So she basically says, hey, help me clear this level, and then I'll get help you pay for mom's medication. This is basically like a World War II simulation. The Nazis are outside. She decides to free the goats even though these are virtual goats, she decides to free the goats just out of kindness, which then reveals that there's a tractor in there and they use the tractor to make an escape, clear the level. And by the time Burton comes back from his potty break or snack break, whatever he was doing, she's already cleared the level. She's already done that and headed back, to, headed out to work. She does 3D printing. She like runs at a 3D print shop with some of her coworkers, I guess her best friend. On the way, she runs into this sheriff, Tommy, what's his name? Constantine, I think who uh, she either has a crush on him from when she was younger, or he has a crush on her, or maybe they have a crush on each other. Can't get quite a feel on this yet. She has a crush on him. Yeah. But I feel like he also has yes. a crush on her. That's what I'm saying. I think that maybe they're going to end up together at some point in the show, which is a little corny, <laughs> but still, I'm, I'm okay. Okay. You know, got, we got to have some human interest in there. So, okay. Okay. I'll, I'll buy it. Uh, and we find out also that he's getting married, right? So he's actually there to print out some um, figurines, like, for his cake. Flynn's best friend says, I can't believe you work here at this shop because you could easily just go do what your brother does. You're even better at it than he does. You have the means to make a better living than you do here. She he says, it's not real. It's not real. She wants the, the real world, right? I feel like the characters are all believable. Yeah. And I don't dislike it. The way I feel about it is I'm not hooked. Part of the issue I have with getting hooked in with this is, and I, I believe, I'm pretty sure that in the book, this is like a lower income family from the South, something like that. Like very similar to what they're presenting here, regardless of where geogra geographically they're from. I think that this comes right from the novel. But by having these actors putting on these very thick accents, and you know these are pretty well-known actors, relatively well-known, and the accents are so obvious, even if they're not that well-known. It's just another distancing thing for me. It's like, why? Like, they could be from the South and not have really thick accents. Like, you know, they went to college and stuff. They lost their accents. That happens all the time. You know, like, it just seems like, once again, I just feel like the ingredients are right. I like science fiction. 
I'm just kind of like, I don't know. There's just something that's not, like you said, I'm just not hooked in. I'm, not, I'm thinking about stuff, but I'm not engaged, right? Even though I'm not hooked, I appreciate a lot of the things that are happening here. Yeah. I like the actors. I think everyone's relationship is believable. I think the people are likable. I think this girl is like so nice, like what I was saying before. She is reprimanding her brother, but she's kind of nice about it. Yeah. I like these people. I just don't know if this is going to pay off yeah. because I have a vision of how this would pay off. Right. And I'd like to see that happen, but I don't feel like it will. I feel like I'm going to be let down. I have a speculation of my own into a direction I hope the show goes into. So let's save that for, for the end because I, I'm very curious to know what your uh, version of that basically is. Yeah, where it would be like, oh, that was a great show. Yeah, yeah. yeah and who knows? I mean, like, like I said, the book is pre-written, so there could be a really good ending there that they just have to, you know, successfully bring to screen. But I mean, it has potential, is yeah. what we're trying to say. Sure, sure. Then we see that uh, someone has requested a 3D printout of a new headgear. The company's Milagros Cold Iron from Peru, I think, somewhere in South America. And apparently this has been printed out for Burton. So because Burton has cleared some level on via gaming, this headset's been like tailored for him. He's supposed to be a good candidate for this. He normally goes and tests out games that are in production. And he thinks this is more of the same. Turns out when he shows up at the house with the headgear, when she shows up at the house with the headgear, she's like, you never made it to level 100. He's like, yeah, but someone logged in as me and made it to level 100. And that of course was Flynn herself. So he goes, hey, why don't you go in Try the headgear on, see what they have. You know, you're probably more qualified for whatever that mission is than I am. And there's a big payday. And with that payday, you can take care of us for like a month or two. He's like saying, like, so he basically take care of the meds for a while for the mom. And of course, pay their way as well. She throws on the headgear and this is a completely immersive, right? It's basically connecting to her brain. It's not just a VR headset with like just a visual pain in front of it, which is similar to what is being rolled out now with some of these new devices. So it's the most immersive experience she's had. And she's in, we know, but she doesn't know yet, in this 2099 version of London. And she has a voice in her head giving her instructions for a mission she needs to complete. That voice turns out to be Alita, who we met momentarily at the beginning in a different body talking to Wolf. This is very, very good, this scene, though. Like when she gets off the motorcycle yeah. in the body of her brother in this video world she believes she's in. Yep. The motorcycle behind him just kind of like melts. It like shrinks down sand. into like a, yeah, it's a small version of it. <laughs> so she could like get on it later. Yeah, which is very video gamey. Absolutely. It's very pretty. I like when people just magically appear as they walk through the screen. In the house, those robot oh, yeah. servants. Mm -hmm. Very pretty. So there's a lot I like about it. One of the things she needs to do, accomplish, is to seduce this woman at this party. Not just like, you know, get her number. He needs to get, she needs to go home with him, which is with her, which is interesting because first of all, you have um, Flynn who is in her brother's body, strangely, and has to seduce a woman, even though she's presenting herself as a man. Actually, she has a fantasy later on of the seduction itself. But beyond that, it's the fact that <laughs> just the logistics of this, how did they know that she was going to go and be seduced by this guy. And you could be like, well, maybe this guy is like very much like her type, let's say. And really, he would have messed that up. The yeah. reason oh, yeah. she yeah. got this woman is because she's very smart and she is a woman. 
she already knows what the thing to say would be to get her to be like, oh, so intrigued. I could that buy they that. Would, yeah. I, I did buy it. I, I do buy that part of it. Absolutely. The part I don't buy is that this whole mission hinges on the fact that she will be sexually attracted to this uh, guy. <laughs> that's that's with a little that they're putting a lot on the line there. Right. A lot, a lot of guesswork. there. He's charming. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the it could work. We see a couple other things here. She very gymnastic, basically, in her movements, more so than she is in real life in this body, which, of course, she still thinks is a virtual body. And I guess it is in, in its own way. But that's the kind of stuff that also made it come off like a cartoon. Yeah. If this was more earthy, I would have definitely liked it better. Yeah. But this is like they're in a video game. You know, I can do these ninja moves that I can't do in real life. I can seduce a woman by saying, I guess, key words. Maybe that's the key because she's a robot too. Well, is she though? I don't think, I think she's a real person. That's she's thing. not. But if I was in this person's body, I'd oh. be like, maybe that's a robot too. Oh, yeah. And right. I you just think, have You think to it's say, just a game. Of course you think it's just a game. X amount of the right words right. and they would be like, oh yeah. You know, you're not a gamer, but what you're describing is the way games work with gaming, you know, especially when you have interactions with characters, virtual characters, that's exactly what you need to do. You need to say like, what are the correct sequence of words, questions to ask or whatever to get to the next level, right? To get them to give you the piece of information you want. But it, like you said, it's like pre-encoded. You just need to guess the pattern, right? Yeah. But that made it feel like a cartoon and the lighting and the video is different. It's like it has a filter or something. So it doesn't look the same as when they're in the South, our assumption oh, is. Yeah, absolutely. This has a, a video game. It's got a filter on it. So you're very aware that they're in a video game. These are the things that are not connecting me to this. Yes, yes. I'm not hooked because yeah. of that. Yeah. The stakes are not clear, but also the world, right? I, I agree. Like the world is like too artificial. It's like it's too... And I feel the same way. This is how I feel about... The later seasons of Westworld as well. All of my appreciation of the show, which I'm curious about for sure, is tamped down by my experience of Westworld, which has all the issues you're describing, where you have these, you know, sequences where they all have to go to some orgy or some beautiful, lavish party or something. And it's all just like we need to clear this level and figure out who do we need to talk to here and what thing do we need to. And it makes it all feel just so arbitrary and there's it's just low stakes, especially when like in Westworld, not that, you know. Litigate Westworld. We right talk now. about Westworld <laughs> All the so <laughs> much, but just we to bring do. it up, <laughs> but to bring it up again, it's, it's just a constant. Fact. Yeah, I mean, that's the, it's the whole Westworld problem, but the uh, it's the same issue. It's we the same are issue. so against it. We're like, why, why, <laughs> and not, like we cannot get over it. I know, and they have not renewed for another season. Thank God, please do not bring another season of that show back. What annoys me about Westworld is that it had so much, much potential. potential. Yeah. The first season and so I good. was yeah. so excited about the show. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, interesting viewpoints could be had from even the first season. So many different levels of, I loved it. I thought it was so intelligent. And then I got bored. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just repeated bored. itself over and over again. Yeah. Like not even intellectually no. dampen, just bored. Yeah. That's why I'm so like annoyed at rest. <laughs> why we bring it up all the time? We're like, why? 
The last time we promised last time I'll bring it up. No, don't promise this. Let's try not to bring it up again. <laughs> exactly. We'll see. We'll see how successful that can be. I mean, especially depending on the direction the show goes in. I'm trying not to prejudge it. That's my problem. I feel that's the only reason I bring it up once again was that I feel like I'm prejudging based on that. And I'm trying not to. I'm, I'm going to try not to. Once she actually does the seduction, she gets attacked by this robot driver, <laughs> which she's warned about, but uh, nonetheless, she uh, escapes, brings this woman that she's seduced to Alita, who we see in her normal form, I believe, at this point, just asking a lot of questions. Alita disconnects her. And she's like, okay, well, that was pretty messed up. But she decides she's going to go head out, get a drink. And more importantly, at that same bar, meet up with the local drug dealers in town. And also, like I guess, the mob boss in that town as well. Or the crime boss, I should say. I don't think he's in the mob. To score herself that one pill she needs for her mom. So she runs into the whole gang there. They're pretty messed up. They you know, kind of threaten her, maybe even a little uh, sexually there. No, they definitely wanted sex. <laughs> yes, that was part of the, <laughs> the deal they were trying to offer. She's so calm, even with them. <laughs> yes. like, like She's the probably way used she, to it. She's probably used to this. So. She was just like, oh, kind of exasperated. How annoying. Just give me my pill. And that's when we meet Connor, who we saw briefly inside the bar as well. He's a war veteran who apparently fought, uh, I guess, in very different circumstances with Burton and his friends because he, you know, physically fought. He like lost three limbs. He has only one arm. Only one arm, right? And uh, but he has an incredible motorcycle that is connected to his brain. You know, he's exited at the same time that she has. Rolls up as she's getting kind of threatened by these bullies, and he says, "The only question is, will I kill all three of you or two of you before you get one bullet off?" And uh, with all that said, all they do is, you know, give him the pill, give her the pill, which is all she wanted in the first place. They made, make themselves a thousand dollars. And then we get a little backstory on, on Connor and she heads off with her pill. What did you think of this Connor character? Once again, it's just this artifice of the show. I think he's just overdoing it with the accent also, right? It's just like, oof, everything's a little too heightened for me on this show, I think. They come off actually very believable as a brother and a sister. Yes, they, their chemistry is pretty good, even though the accents annoy me. But yes, I can. I don't know if I'm as sensitive to terrible accents as you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I believe you might I be had the more Game of Thrones. sensitive yeah, I had to the that. The House of the Dragon issues you, as well. <laughs> you're always like that was a terrible accent. Oof. How could they? And I'm thinking. I don't know if I even noticed it was terrible to me. I'm like, oh, and they have to do an accent. So they're doing this accent, even like bad Irish accents. I'll be like, oh, they were told to do an Irish accent and they're not Irish. So it sounds like that. But they're also actors. They're not really this guy anyway. So I kind of don't care as much as you do. So what I was noticing is that the two of them are great brother and sister combo. Like there's no sexual chemistry, not like Game of Thrones. (laughs) Well, that's a whole other situation. (laughs) House of the Dragon. Well, that's a different situation. That's like brothers and sisters being like hubba hubba. (laughs) But that's what we've been watching like lately. Yeah. And I also kind of like his friends. They're just kind of really normal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like it. I like that. Have like good chemistry. They're just buds. Yep. Drinking beer around the fire pit. Like they're real easy. And then even the bullies come off like believable. Yeah. They're just like the town low level 
thugs. The town accepts them because they're their thugs. The question is, how do I feel about him? I like him. I like the character. I, I it's just the accent really throws me off. As you, like, I know. You know yeah. Look at you. You're like it's just if it <laughs> it's wasn't just the for accent. that accent. It's just the, it's just the accent. Absolutely. I could. I would have felt just like you. All that being said, even as I hear myself speak, it's a little bland. Mm. I think the biggest problem with the show right now, honestly, is these episodes. Like I think the first episode was an hour and fifteen minutes. The second one was like an hour and five minutes. Hour and ten. There's absolutely no reason for these episodes to be over an hour long. And I think that, you know, if they tighten this all up, I think it would feel better. <laughs> and maybe the next episode, maybe the future episodes will be shorter. Maybe they're just doing a lot of table setting. So I, I saw the first two. Yeah, I saw both. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Next morning she wakes up, she medicates her mom with that pill. We get more information about the mom. Like you said, she's blind and obviously very sick. Burton mentions that, you know, had mentioned already that he's ordered more pills based on that mission they completed and especially with that thing that she did the night before that big payout and the mom also mentions that burton's been helping her out by subsidizing her pills with his own and i think it was the night when she arrived that she saw that burton was like struggling with the haptics kind of under his skin uh flaring up adding that to the fact that now he knows she knows that He's been giving his pills to his mom. She kind of basically apologizes to him. I thought you were stealing from mom. I didn't realize what you were doing. And this motivates her even more to complete this next mission. Long story short, she's back in the peripheral. Got there just in time. Lucky, lucky her to have her eyeball removed <laughs> in a really gross sequence, by the way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's so funny. Like, you know, I not, I don't think I've even in a horror movie seen an eyeball actually extracted from the socket. And this yeah, is like but clinical. They, they yeah. managed to like even make that a little bland. <laughs> Maybe you're right. Yeah. It's, it's so it's weird. Bloodless. It's bloodless. So that's part yeah, of it. Yeah. I'm watching that and I'm like, this is so disgusting. Ew. And then I'm like, you know, it's this is very horror movie. Like, yeah. why am I kind of it's like I'm watching a cartoon. I think they're I think they're intentionally not making it. Horror, so that like, was what yeah. I was going to bring up to you yeah. at one point, since you said it. Yeah. Do you think that this style is intentional or do you think that they just kind of, they missed the mark somehow? I was going to save this for the end, but I'm going to call out <laughs> Vincent Natalie here. I have appreciated Vincent Natalie's films in the past, especially Splice, I think is a really, really good film. Even when that was off the rails, I think I only would give that film like a three star, three and a half star, but it could have been like a five star because I feel like, to your point, it's not like a David Cronenberg film. Uh, you really feel like the, the visceralness of it, right? I think Cronenberg's a perfect example of this where his films are simultaneously very, very cerebral and at the same time, they feel like it's gross. It's like you feel like the fly is simultaneously very cold and cerebral and yet very emotional and very earthy at the same time. It's a very hard thing to pull off. And I would say in general, with him as a director, I feel like he gets the heady part and not the other part ever. And I you know, hate to say this, but that's just my general opinion of him as a director, which is part of the reason I'm kind of committing to the show, because I wonder if the next episodes won't have this same kind of, he just, oh, we just like the, the ingredients are right, but it doesn't taste right. right? And I think I, maybe that is going to. <laughs> That's exactly. Different. You're so good with words. <laughs> Look at you. Yes. What you said. It's off. Yes. 
exactly. I agree. Like you said, that it's just too much of one tone instead of shifting tones, right? So, but we'll see. We'll see. I hope it's great. I always hope things are great, though. I like hope for greatness. And then I even try to look on the bright side of stuff sometimes a little bit too much for too long. So I don't want that to happen. (laughs) I agree. This is very funny, by the way. I don't know if you saw this, but we had a review that came in just this week. And someone said that their content is usually good, but then they don't really like a show and they give very half-hearted coverage to the show. And Sona, her reaction to that was, <laughs> she's like, we're most full-throated in our coverage of something when we don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> so to your point, I think if we liked this show more, we probably would be talking about it less. <laughs> so, Yeah. I, I understand how that could be because, you know, when like you really like a show, you're like so excited to tell right. everybody how great it is and right. why it's so great. And I hope you watch it so you can have joy, too. Like, we just want to spread the joy. And then if something is like not good, you don't want to be too like, you know, aggressive about it because you still do appreciate factors I mean, I never made a movie, so good for you. Absolutely. I agree with all that. Great job. Right. You did that. You know, it doesn't just because I don't really like it, but I don't feel like I need to bash it down and really like hammer that in, you know, so I'm just thinking of you in general with, I don't know who you were talking to or what they listened to, but you're just being, um, critical yeah but not negative really exactly i oftentimes will criticize a show like for example the old man when it went off the rails but i try to be constructive i think we both were trying to be constructive about like what we had liked so much at the beginning of the show and how we felt it led us astray kind of a missed opportunity that is the type of thing that i react to when i feel like oh this could have been so much better and they really missed the mark the only time i'll really bash something is when i feel like it is overtly lazy like when you'll see you know, some giant $200 million spectacle. They're spending a fortune on this. Thousands of people are doing special effects for this thing. And I feel like they haven't even tried to write a script that makes any sense at all. And I'm just like, like, how do you get this far along and screw up so many things, right? As opposed to this show where, you know, I am not saying that at all. I'm thinking that there are many very interesting aspects of this specific show. And I do hope it gets better. I'm curious enough to keep sampling it. That's basically what it comes down to. Me too. I'm going to keep going. Yeah, me too. So now back to that, (laughs) with that digression out of the way, (laughs) back to to the transplanted eye. It turns out, interestingly, by the way, she, Alita tells Flynn, this isn't your body. Disassociate. Disassociate the eyeball being pulled out, the optic nerve being pulled out from your brain. Just disassociate. And she somehow is able to do this. And Alita's like, oh, impressive, impressive. When she comes to again, she is inside of a taxi, a future Uber of some kind. <laughs> Not sure why they need an actual person to drive these cars, by the way. Can't they just drive themselves? But regardless, she apparently needed to transplant that eyeball because this is the eyeball from the woman that she seduced the other day. And it gives them access to this building they're trying to get into. So interestingly, when they get into this building using this eyeball, they get to some kind of giant pyramid. And when she looks into it, there is a painful data transfer. She freaks out, but she goes, no, you have to stay there until it completes. Apparently they're stealing some essential information from this computer via this device. And I'm very interested to know, is that information being downloaded into the robotic body, uh, Burton 
peripheral that they've built in this timeline? Or is it in the headgear that Flynn is wearing at that moment? Because of course that makes that headgear very, very important, uh, essential to this, these people in the future. Or is it inside of Flynn herself? Because then of course they can't kill Flynn if that's the case. Well, that's one of the mysteries I have here that I'm very curious to know, like where did that information go and who currently possesses it? I assume that whoever was watching this all happen, yeah. because it's a video game, really, somebody is you know, always kind of on this. They're never alone. I figured when she got the information, whatever, or however she would ever get information, would automatically be transmitted back to headquarters. I feel like they have this already. I think it's already out there. I think there is some value in sending it back through to that device in the past, right? Because uh, that makes it, you know, uh, that thing becomes essential and also gets it out of the hands of whoever these bad people are. We don't even know who this is yet, <laughs> who these bad guys are and what their conspiracy is. We just know that just very generically, uh, there is a conspiracy that's trying to be unraveled here. It's odd though, because again, like as a plot point, it's not even a focal one mm -hmm. yet. Mm -hmm. It's right. so strange. This is the weirdest setup. I'm like, I don't know how to feel about this. So this is actually when she first suspects that she's in things are not as they seem. And basically what happens is this bodyguard shows up, captures, you know, she she goes in there, you know, to uh, protect Alita. Still thinking this is a video game, by the way. She goes and goes to attack the bodyguard. The bodyguard is way more proficient than she is. Uh, zip ties her hands behind her back. You know, he tries to use this percussion weapon on Alita uh, to torture her into speak talking. But she's able to extricate herself by basically degloving her hand. And that's when she realizes she doesn't have, you know, bones under there. She has this robotic skeleton, which of course makes her very suspicious to be, she even mentions it soon thereafter to be like, this doesn't make sense. If I'm inside of a video game, why wouldn't I have a human body? Like, why would they give me a robot body? It doesn't make any sense, which makes her suspicious that she's actually piloting an actual body somewhere else. She doesn't know where that somewhere is. The idea that is a different timeline gets pretty, pretty highfalutin at that point. She does not get the upper hand with this uh, bodyguard, ends up getting uh, one of those percussion hits right to her head, which, you know, not only destroys the robot's brain, but, you know, pushes her right back into her normal body. This all, once again, these uh, kind of robotic bodies that people are piloting, piloting around does make me think once again, oh my God, I'm going to say it, of Westworld. <laughs> I said I wasn't going to say I it. I knew it. I couldn't make I it. I knew it. Couldn't make it 10 minutes without bringing up Westworld again. <laughs> Meanwhile, we see, you know, she's back at work the next day. She just thinks she's had this really weird experience. She doesn't understand why anyone would build a video game where people have to pilot around robot bodies and not just human bodies. It doesn't make any sense to her. But just as she's kind of contemplating all this, all the computers in her 3D printing lab, it's uh, Wolf or Wilf. Some people call her Wilf. Hit Wilf. Some people call him Wolf. Uh, from the future warning that there is a $9 million bounty on you. It's been put on you. And basically every single mercenary on the dark web is headed your way to murder you and your brother. She doesn't take him seriously at first, but eventually she does tell Burton, hey, just so you know, <laughs> this might be happening. And of course, we do know that it is happening. People are showing up with invisible cars. <laughs> I'm yeah. not sure how they got invisible cars. This technology actually exists, by the way, although it's not like this good. <laughs> but it does exist. It's actually pretty cool technology. They've made like planes and cars invisible in very limited ways. And what you do is you basically put a camera and little tiny LED screen on one side of your car. And then that image is broadcast to the opposite side of the car and then vice versa. So if you're looking in a specific angle, 
the thing would look invisible, right? Because you're looking right through it because you're actually seeing what's on the other side of it. The thing that doesn't make sense in this, you know, version of reality is that basically this car is invisible from every single angles. How would the car know to project the version from who's watching it? You know, like it would, wouldn't really make sense. It doesn't really make sense. But uh, it's almost, you, it's almost. Do you real. know what this real. is like? It's like watching an old Terminator movie. Yeah. Yeah. This is what this feels like. It's like, well, to be honest with you, it feels like the non-canonical Terminator movies, like Terminator 1 and 2, the ones that are not directed by James Cameron, basically. <laughs> the technology was kind of cool and somewhat re realistic in the first two Terminator movies. And then after that, it was just kind of like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about all this the new technology. That Everything's like a little too square. A little too weird. Yeah. A little, and like yeah. the, and the, the, the logic of the technology doesn't really quite make sense. You know, like uh, Cameron's more of an engineer, so he is a little more grounded with his the technology he makes up my opinion anyway but so the bounty hunters are out to get them and burton like you mentioned happens to be hanging out with his band of brothers there they all have these haptics they all synchronize they all go check out these drones just to be careful you know the, the story seems a little ridiculous bounty hunters are coming to kill them oh right sure because they played some video game last night all right but you know what just to be sure let's go and synchronize and send one of these drones up in the air and see if we see anything and of course they see the mercenaries are on the way, coming to get them in their invisible cars. Actually, they're just marching through the forest at this point. But dun, 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 that's the cliffhanger for episode one. And then we go right into episode two. This one, once again, directed by the same Vincenzo Natalie again. And we have this protracted, once again, not that thrilling for whatever reason. I guess because we just know that no one's going to die at this moment. Gunfight. Couple of interesting things here. <laughs> one is pretty funny that, you know, she just conveniently given her mom a sleeping pill. So her mom sleeps through this whole entire thing. <laughs> I know. Good for her. <laughs> right. Also interesting that Flynn is really, really good at coming up with like tactic, uh, you know, being tactical and, uh, you know, thinking things out in the video game. But in real world, real life, she's not very proficient, I guess, because she's afraid for her life, <laughs> which makes sense. Her brother, who has some actual battle experience, is much more proficient at this. They've hacked the drones for these mercenaries. The mercenaries now have hacked the drones back again. They're running out of ammo. And just in the final moments, Connor rolls up, kills everybody, saves the day. Meanwhile, in the future, Wilf is having a dream or a flashback. I'm not sure of Alita. I don't know if this is Alita visiting his dream or if this is just a flashback. I think it's just a flashback the last time he saw her. And he's uh, interrupted from this dream by an early morning call from his employer, this is a very, very talky scene. Not great, in my opinion, but still, it like does a lot of legwork as introducing these characters and basically saying that he needs Wilf to get Flynn to get back into her peripheral. They've made a new peripheral now that looks like her because they know it's her now. And they need to explain what's going on because she's the last one who's had any contact with Alita. And we also find out here with the secondary conversation after he hangs up, this other woman who's in the room, I don't even know who she is, but she basically says, do we trust Wilf? Isn't he just like kind of a middleman? And he goes, you'd be surprised when it comes to violence, that guy knows violence. So he has some kind of shady past. I'm sure it'll pay off later on. And then Flynn gets back into that peripheral body or into a new peripheral body, I should say, and has this meeting with Wilf. And Wilf lays everything on the line that we've been kind of skirting around this whole entire time. Basically explains that what's happening is that you are piloting this body in this future. This is the London in the future. And she goes, this isn't London in the future. There's nobody in the streets. I was like, how does nobody live in London? And they're like, well, there's a reason for that. Don't have enough details about that yet. I guess it's some kind of war possibly that exterminated a lot of people. That's my guess. And she's not convinced. They're like saying, this is what's happening. You are inside of a stub. This is interesting, by the way. Maybe we should spend a few minutes talking about this. But there are basically two 
models of time travel. The one model of time travel is like the movie Primer, which says that we're in a closed loop. So for example, in that version of history, there's no way that someone could go back in time and kill Adolf Hitler in his crib, because if that was the case, then Adolf Hitler never would have existed. Therefore, there would never be a reason to have him killed in his crib because he never would have done anything. So in a closed loop, that's one version. So something couldn't have happened because it never has happened. The second version of time travel is what we're seeing here, which is a multiverse. And the idea is you go back in time to a certain period, you go and kill Hitler, you now have spawned an entire new history from that moment on. So you are now living inside of a, a, a history that never existed before. So like you can't run into yourself in the future because that version of yourself is now gone, right? You, you've exited that reality and gone into a new one. So this is a multiverse version of time travel. And we could talk about that if you want to, but they even like, they're saying it's complicated. <laughs> we'll explain more later. So maybe <laughs> they don't probably don't want to scare off the, the, the listeners. Although even this version of time travel that they're calling out here doesn't make sense either. So, or maybe we can even talk about it more in the future once we uh, get more episodes under our belt. So she isn't convinced by this, still isn't convinced by this, but they're like, okay, well, there's a couple of things we can do. One is we can give you an experimental treatment that might cure your mom. We are having it printed right now at the 3D printing place where you work. Another thing is you need money. We know you need money. We're going to get you $250,000 cash. And she's like, well, that's going to like get rid of our disability and all these other things, my brother's pension and stuff. They're like, okay, well, we'll figure out a way to get you that money. She goes back and tells his, her brother, this is all that happened inside when I was inside the body. And they're like, they are fucking with you. <laughs> that is all bullshit. <laughs> and uh, she's more convinced than he is, but not 100% convinced. She is convinced enough to, you know, I mean, I guess she really has no other options here. They showed her their obituary of her mom's death, which makes me wonder about this whole multiverse thing once again, which I guess if she doesn't think this is real, then they could have manufactured that also. Turns out that they're telling her that your mom's going to die like in six weeks. Turns out the mom knows that she's already supposed to be dead. I think she, the doctor said she only has like a month left to live. All of these things get her convinced enough to inject this thing into her mom. She eventually tells her brother about this. The brother's not happy about that, but, um, but she's like, look, mom told me she's going to die anyway. So what does she really have to lose? He doesn't want to hear that either, of course. And they also mention her in a subsequent conversation that it's not even guaranteed that's going to work. So she's pretty annoyed by all of this. But importantly, when they're at a bar near the very end of the episode, they win the lottery. Their friend wins the lottery and he wins about a quarter of a million dollars, which there you go. They got cash without having to raise too many alarms. And she's like, are you starting to believe? And he's like, yeah, a little bit more. Even more convinced, obviously, when we get to the very end of the episode and they hear somebody in the house, they run downstairs to be like, oh my God, someone's breaking into the house. But no, it's the mom. She's been healed. She can even see again. It's a miracle. I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> yeah. I knew she was going to see again, too. I was like, she's definitely going to see. Me, too. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, so funny. It's like a complete, like, it's not only like, oh my God, I feel better. I can get around, which would be, you know, would still give them some ambiguity, but it's like, I could see again. <laughs> wow. Just to drive the point home. Yeah. I mean, I think that would be the best part of her new medication, right? So just, they yeah. have to give her sight. One more thing happens, and then we can get to final thoughts. Pickett, who is the head crime lord of this town, gets visited when he's in VR inside of one of these speakeasy type clubs, hooking up with some girl, or at least picking one up to hook, hook up with. Carmen. And, uh, Carmen, yes. Carmen. <laughs> I, I'm surprised you remember the name. Oh, yeah, that's right. Carmen, because of the banana and the bananas. Don't exist yes. Anymore. He kept going on about the Chiquita <laughs> banana. Yeah. And she's like, what's a banana? <laughs> bananas don't exist anymore in this world. So 
he's interrupted by um, the same security guard that we saw at that facility with the pyramid computer. And he basically says, we're going to give you $10 million. All you have to do is kill two residents of your town, Flynn and Burton. And he's like, you guys are trying to entrap me. And he gets all pissed off. He pulls off the headgear, pulls off the sensors he had on his crotch, completely ruined his cyber sex session. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a buzz kill. <laughs> Definitely. But he goes to get into bed with his wife and she's like, oh, well, I guess we're not going back in there anymore. I think someone hacked into there. Like, I think the government's watching me. They had promised him that not only would they pay him $10 million, they give him a quarter of it up front just as a sign of goodwill. And he gets an alert from his bank. He's just gotten $2.5 million deposited into his account. So he's like, holy crap. So now he's definitely gunning for these two as well, a new risk to them. One thing I forgot before we get to closing moments is that earlier in the, sh in the show, when Flynn was inside the peripheral again, one of her, per her the, the new peripheral, the sheriff her ex love interest showed up, you know, and there's like piles of bodies in the backyard with flies all over them. And luckily they keep him away from the house. So he doesn't notice what's going on there. But of course he has found the invisible cars. Very questionable. He's, he's definitely going to get drawn into this considering he's like, why are there invisible cars in the middle of the street? <laughs> and who was driving those cars and why are there no, why are they not around anymore? Who left their invisible, the most cutting edge technology imaginable. They just left it behind. He, he says cool things when he's confused, like, you think I'm a fool, <laughs> fucking idiots. He says very deep things. How about his partner is the other um, deputy or whoever it is who got run down earlier. Isn't anyone looking for him? I don't think so. <laughs> I'm sure that'll be, there'll be more questions about that as well. Yeah, <laughs> Throughout the course of this, running commentary, we've kind of said where we're at, but is there anything? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, you know what? Before we get to the end, a, you know, I think you're already going to keep sampling this. So I'm curious to know if you're going to keep sampling it. The second thing yes. I was going to ask you is your theory. You said you have a, how you wanted this to play out. <laughs> from what I can see from what I'm looking at here, to make this a good show, she would have to be so deeply immersed in this new technology or future that she would not be able to go back to the past. And in order for her to save her past, because her mom is there and they had to bring that up. I find this to be the least interesting part of this entire thing so far. But they made such a big deal out of it. So now we have to use it. She has to now save her past. So she's in the future. But I don't want her to keep being able to go back and forth. Yeah. And then her, the way she saves the past so that the future could ever happen, like you were talking about before with time, either in the circle or she has to do certain things because she's in a video game. And that would have to be played out very intelligently. And then I could buy this. So touching on some of the things you said wouldn't be practical, but I think some of them also are things that are actually going to happen. Here's my theory of the case. First of all, she can't go back. She has to go back and forth in time because basically what this technology is saying is that she is in the past. Her brain is in the past and she's just broadcasting. Like, so she's controlling a remote body in the future, but she doesn't have her conscious in the future. It's like when you're playing a video game and you're not using your local computer when you're playing uh, one of these group collaborative uh, games like the, the boys do, you're controlling one of the characters on that server, but you're just piloting what's out there, but you're still here, right? So you, she hasn't transferred her conscious into the future. So I don't think that she could do that. She's going to have to continue to be set in one time. I think what's going to happen, 
to your point of like someone has to like she has to complete this game. When you think about that early sequence where we see the cabin and it's been printed out and somebody's like moving the characters around like pawns on a chessboard, somebody and this might be Alita. Alita at one point earlier in the show says to Wilf that she's trying to save the world. And he goes, the world's already lost. We can't save it. And she goes, I'm not trying to save your world. I'm trying to save the world. So the point is that she is trying to manipulate the past to per perhaps prevent all these terrible things that are going to happen. And she is playing this like a chess match where she is picking out this family because they're in the right place at the right time and they are purely pawns. So to your point, what you're trying to see, she may very well, Flynn may very well have to sacrifice herself because it's going to be like in the end, she's going to prevent this horrible thing from happening, but she's just a soldier, right? Going to this metaphor of soldiers on the field. She's just somebody who needed to do the following things to get to the next level. She's not important in the grand scheme of things, right? And maybe Flynn might have something to say about that. But I think that that is part of what we're seeing here. Someone is, you know, pulling these pawns, moving them around the board. But I think more interesting is that when you think about a multiverse, there might be somebody else who wants a different version of the future. So there might be multiple people in multiple timelines that are going back to this one person in the past, Flynn and her family, to manipulate them to get an outcome that they want. And that I think is very interesting when you think about it from that perspective. That sounds good too. A combo so, of that would be good. Yeah. <laughs> the UN, let's mush your theory and my <laughs> theory together and get something in the middle. Mine isn't even as good as yours because mine is very uh, video gamey. Yeah. Like, you know. But I feel like that's the vibe that I'm getting off of the show. And right. I would buy my theory if it happened that way. Right. To me, this is a video game series, which is not my favorite thing in the world. Right. <laughs> well, you know, what? think about it. What you might like better is think about it in the perspective of Terminator 1 versus Terminator 2. In Terminator 1, we're in a closed loop, meaning that John Connor grew to a certain age, sent back. Uh, Reese to impregnate his mom and they're in a closed loop, right? Like he knows that this is going to happen in the future and his mom knows it's going to happen in the future because it happened in the past case closed. This, this is a loop, right? There's nothing you can do about it. Terminator 2 was the opposite. They actually said, if we erase these things from the past, we now live in a new future that the day will pass and the world won't end because we have basically taken fate into our own hands. What I was speculating is that we might have a version in ter the Terminator 2 version of the story where there's somebody out there who is not just theoretically sending robots back in, in that movie, but in other words, sending messages back and trying to manipulate that time to change their future or a version of their future. Well, we'll see. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I hope we like it. I do too. But, but I, I don't do want to, like, if I, if I get to episode four and I'm still like not connecting, I think I'm going to bow out. Yeah, possible. But I did want to mention that we will, at least in the near term, be continuing to cover the peripheral on Amazon Prime. These episodes, rather than be coming out here, I think I'll be publishing this Sunday night immediately after the House of the Dragon uh, episode, the finale. But instead, we will be publishing these episodes in the future, covering the peripheral and honestly, other Amazon Prime properties as well on Fridays. This Friday, I plan that we will cover one more episode of the peripheral, which is coming out, but a new show on Amazon Prime called The Devil's Hour, which is a horror thriller hybrid 
and it looks very interesting. I don't know if it's going to be good or not yet, <laughs> but once again, maybe we <laughs> sample that one as well, and we decide which one of these shows we're going to cover in the future. But Amazon Prime, like I mentioned earlier, coming off the tail of Lord of the Rings, the success they've had with that show, are going to launch a bunch of other shows, hoping that some of these actually um, get some traction and get popular. So we'll sample them. And uh, there's another one that I'm probably most interested in coming in just two more weeks called The English, which stars Emily Blunt as an English woman who comes to the US during the Old West. And it looks like a very dark uh, thriller. set in And I West. love Westerns I know in, you do. Any, in any form. I just love them. <laughs> and you're like, you have a cowboy fetish. But <laughs> um, it's, it's not. <laughs> it's not a cowboy fetish. Um, I like that. It's very, I like that earthy. It, it all seems very real as opposed to, you know, sci-fi. You have to suspend a lot of belief. Right. And then when I'm watching like cowboy movies and Westerns and cowboys, I don't have to suspend belief. This is all very believable. You know what? I'm going to tell you something that might make you appreciate science fiction movies more that science fiction movies emerged in the 50s after Westerns started to die out. And the reason is that sci-fi movies were new Westerns. So what Westerns were in the olden days, totally fictional. Like our mythology of the West is completely a lie from a historical perspective. However, what it allowed you to do was tell stories about people going out to a frontier to discover a new land, to go somewhere where no one had ever been before, right? And then that is what Westerns were. But then throughout the course of the 50s, 40s and 50s, people basically had colonized everywhere. So there was no more mystery like, oh, when we go here, we're going to encounter these different types of people or whatever. So they're like, what is the next frontier? And that's when they started to make science fiction movies. So to your point, you're saying you have to suspend disbelief. You just have this lower barrier for Westerns, but I would argue watch science fiction movies as if they're Westerns because they actually follow a lot of the same plot beats because they're both about people going into a new frontier. And that's I agree. Yeah. It's and like comparing the Jetsons to the Flintstones. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> it's uh, the same. They're both cartoons and they both cover like these family situations and whatever the themes are. But one of them's the Flintstones, and one of them is way in the future with these really cool apartments and whatever. Did you ever hear about the Jetsons Flintstones theory, like this? Uh, actually, in the same timeline? <laughs> no, but uh, I, you know, like in different. You mean different planets? No. So the theory is that it's like the movie Metropolis or something, where in the future the rich people are so rich they live like up in the clouds in these like you know. Oh. <laughs> And the poor That's people, so the poor sad. people are basically back in the stone ages. So they live in the same, <laughs> so they're actually in the same timeline. That's so sad. All right. So we did want to talk about, we don't have time for it now, but we, we will talk about it maybe later in the week. A really great thriller called The Stranger came on Netflix just this week. I thought it was fantastic. We should definitely uh, spend at least a little bit of time talking about it, maybe later in the week. All right. Thank you for the conversation. <laughs> Enjoy your All dinner. Right. <laughs> Thank you. I better get that out of the oven. <laughs> you All better. Right. I better. Bye. Bye-bye.